Thank you for downloading this sermon from Holy Trinity Reformed Church. If you live in the vicinity of Mooresville, Indiana, come join us as we rebuild Christ's Holy Church out of the ash heaps of American fundamentalism and evangelicalism through repentance, revival, and reformation. If you would like more information about Holy Trinity Reformed Church, or if you do not live in our area but would like to support this ministry, please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. Go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 1. So this week, of course, I had a lot of wrestling to do with uh, what to preach, especially as the week progressed. And uh, we came to the end of the week. Um, But I want us to continue uh, to go through uh, Revelation, at least the first three chapters, because our intention is to look at the churches. And so that's our focus here this morning. But before we get into it here this morning, I just want to say that I thought about uh, preaching something. um, You know, of course, first of all, you have Thanksgiving. And then with the death of my mother. uh, But um, I think it would just be good for us to continue what we are doing. I will say this. um, It was a very difficult day on uh, Friday, but... You know, the Lord, if, we, if we're paying attention and if we are walking in faith and true understanding, we see the Lord at work, even in the midst of trials, tribulations, and afflictions, and sorrow, and death, we see the Lord's hand governing and guiding every step along the way. And he didn't say that he would take those things away from us, This is not health, wealth, and prosperity, but that he would give us grace that is sufficient, as the song says, to meet our trials here. So the sufficiency of God's grace, so that way he will be glorified and his power and glory be made known. And so on Friday, it was a difficult day because my mother had actually had a pretty decent week and a really good day on Thursday. But she took a turn for the worse early Friday morning. And um, by the time I got there, uh, it was very evident that we was definitely in the end stages of life. And so we didn't know it was going to go as quickly as it did. We were actually planning for the next two, three, four days. Um, but, um, she was alert, responsive. She wasn't able to talk, but she could nod, uh, yes and no. She tried to speak, but we just could not understand, make out. She was so weak that there just wasn't uh, enough, uh, sound coming forth, uh, from her. But, um, up in somewhere right, getting close to around two o'clock, We were all sitting there, my sister, my brother, my father, and myself, and we were talking, and so we sung a hymn, and then she went to sleep, and just a very short time period after that, as my father was uh, still in there, 
um, we had went into the other room to kind of plan out what we were going to do and handle the things that we knew were coming upon us for the weekend. And um, he yelled for us, or excuse me, my brother decided that he needed to run, do something, he'd be back a little bit later. And um, so my father yelled for us and said that uh, she was making a uh, gurgling sound. And so we knew immediately that was not good. And so I tried to call my brother to get him back as quick as he could. But she just took a breath. And that was it. No struggles. It was very peaceful, and we are thankful for God's goodness in that area. It was very helpful for my father, who's had difficulty accepting a lot of these things that have been happening. And uh, so, uh, as a matter of fact, he was having all kinds of chest pains and taking nitro, uh, nitro three different times that morning. And, um, but we finally reached a place where, where he even became at peace. And um, all of that went away. And uh, so we know there's difficult times of sorrow ahead, you know, with two, especially Wednesday. And, of course, Thursday will be tough as well. Um, but we are thankful that God gives us grace. He tells us that his mercy is new every morning. And then Paul says that, or the Lord told Paul that his grace was sufficient. So we know that the Lord continues to give grace that is sufficient for each and every day. And he renews it to us every morning. And so we are thankful for that. So how do we go through things? With renewed grace every morning. That's how we do it. All right, Revelation chapter 1 is where we are going to be looking here this morning as we began our series last week. Um, it was a lot of fun for myself. Um, anyway, I don't know if it was much fun for you, but uh, it was a lot of fun for myself, and I've enjoyed talking about some things on Wednesday night, uh, talking about uh, um, uh, Matthew 24 here a couple of weeks ago. And by the way, there won't be a Wednesday night or Wednesday evening prayer service this week, okay? So we will not be having that. Uh, that had already been not canceled, but we just typically do not have the Wednesday night service the night before Thanksgiving. People traveling, people getting ready for Thanksgiving and so forth. Um, so anyway, we will not be holding that. But um, talking about Matthew 24 and then now talking a little bit about the book of Revelation, it is, um, of course, there's always interesting things to talk about, especially in the day and age in which we live. But we began our series last week, the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ to the Seven Churches, and we introduced the book of Revelation by dealing with the meaning of the term used to name, label, and identify the book, right? The book of Revelation. And so words like Revelation and Apocalypse, which by the way, those two terms are synonymous, Apocalypse means revelation, and revelation means apocalypse. Apocalypse does not mean the end of the world. Um, so those terms are synonymous. The Greek word is, a, is where we get the word apocalypse as translated revelation, there in verse number one. So it has to do with discovery and disclosure. Something is being unveiled. 
Something is being revealed. And what is being unveiled and revealed? Well, this book in Revelation begins in verse number one, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what's being revealed. The unveiling, the discovery, the revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. So what this book is about is the unveiling or the manifestation of the risen Christ. Christ incarnate came to die for the sins of the world as a perfect and spotless lamb. The risen Christ has taken the throne. He is the conquering Christ. He is the ruling Christ. He is the reigning Christ. He's no longer a baby in a manger. He's a king sitting on a throne. And so this is the resurrected Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the post-ascension Jesus. This is the exalted Jesus. This is the Jesus who is seated on the throne with all power and authority in heaven and on earth. This is the conquering king. Therefore, the book of Revelation is a divine revelation coming from Jesus Christ himself through the apostle John. It is the inspired word of God. Look at verse number one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true as we read it. We need to understand that this is the word of the Lord. And as we read it, and as we study it, We need to give thanks unto God for the wonderful truths that are in it. As long as we do not use the word of God deceitfully, as so many do, with all their prophecy charts and all the stupid stuff that has happened over the last few decades in relation to the book of Revelation, in relation to the prophetic aspect of the whole word of God. As a matter of fact, there's just been a lot a lot of um, ignorance and a lot of deception. And um, we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, look around us in the state of the church. You think they're going to get that right when we've got everything else wrong? The most difficult parts of the Bible we somehow got right in the midst of our apostasy? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, we can't, we can't get Ephesians 2 right. That's very simple. For we are saved by grace, not of works. It's not of yourself. It is the gift of God. We can't even get that right. How are we going to think we're going to be getting this right? So, however, it is the word of God. The inspired word reveals here the nearness mentioned in Revelation, that it isn't an abrupt culmination, but a commencement. Much like how Jesus gradually revealed answers to his disciples. One example in Matthew chapter 24. As they asked him three questions and then he unveils the answers through the next two chapters. And so this book is a continuous unveiling 
from the first century into the consummation. And you could say that the book of Revelation is a prophetic historical account from the time of Christ's coronation to Christ's consummation. Coronation to consummation. In other words, it is the beginning of his messianic kingdom chronicling the spiritual war until all of his enemies are put under his feet and then the kingdom is delivered up to the Father. The book of Revelation isn't a mere glimpse into future events, but an ongoing manifestation of Jesus, the exalted and conquering king. The trinity of time, he who is, who was, and who is to come, guides our understanding of this divine revelation. Our exploration, as we look at these things, isn't for speculation. But it is a call to practical allegiance and obedience to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This book is the account of the things that John saw in the past. The things John saw in his present. And the things which would take place in the future of John's present. And it all begins with these things being revealed by Jesus Christ through his angel to his servant, the Apostle Paul, to the seven churches of Asia. So as we begin part two of this introduction, which we will entitle, by the way, this is going to be a long introduction. So we started last week with the introduction, chapter one, because we're getting to chapters two and three, the messages to the churches. And uh, so we probably still have a couple of weeks left before we get to the actual messages to the churches, maybe three. Uh, But we are going to title this next part from verse 9 to verse 20. Uh, We're going to conquer this part of the introduction, unveiling the conquering king. So let us heed the call to be like the sons of Issachar, understanding the times and knowing what to do. Blessings await those, according to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Blessings await those who hear, keep, and act upon the sayings of this prophecy, aligning their lives with the conquering King, Jesus Christ. So let's join together in this continual unveiling where these timeless truths of Revelation guide our present actions and shape our future. So in the second part of this chapter, we see the revealing of the conquering king in beginning in verse 9 through 20. So this is where we are going to focus as the veil is being drawn even further to reveal the majestic and conquering king, Jesus Christ. And so we enter the throne room of divine revelation where Jesus, where the risen Christ manifests his glory in a breathtaking display. So let's picture this scene. John, the faithful servant, exiled on the island of Patmos for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He encounters the risen Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes unto him in revelation, and he encounters the risen Christ in his full splendor. The symbols and the imagery painted by John's words transport us into the heavenly realm where our Savior stands as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. His voice, like a mighty trumpet, resonates with authority that reverberates through time and eternity. 
And here in the intricate details of this vision, we witness the conquering king, his eyes aflame with piercing insight, his countenance radiant with divine glory. The golden sash around his chest signifies his sovereign rule, and the voice and the voice like rushing waters underscores the unparalleled power of his glory. So hold your breath as John describes his eyes, a flame of fire, penetrating through the depths of our souls, discerning the motives and the intentions hidden within. His feet, like burnished bronze, reflecting a purity that treads the winepress of justice, confronting evil and establishing righteousness. Fear not, for the hands that hold the seven stars signify his sovereign authority over the messengers of the seven churches. His omniscient gaze pierces through the veils of our lives, guiding us to walk faithfully in his light. And the crowns upon his head, a declaration of his triumph over sin and the forces of darkness. Behold the Lamb who was slain, now standing in victorious resurrection. So as we discover the unveiling of the conquering king, let us approach it with reverence and awe. The revelation in these verses isn't just for artistic display, of divine grandeur. It's an invitation, an invitation to recognize his dominion over our lives, to submit to his guidance, and to stand in awe of the conquering king who holds the keys to hell and death. So may our look, at least in these first three chapters, deepen our understanding. May it fuel our worship and fortify our commitment to the Lord of lords and the king of kings. Let's begin reading in verse number 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. 
I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and who was dead. And behold, I am alive evermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord and it is eternally true. And this morning what I want us to do is to begin looking at the imagery here of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to jump right in by noticing that there first of all are seven golden lampstands. Now these symbolize the completeness and unity of the church radiating the light of Christ in a dark world. They are lampstands. And you will remember later on as Jesus is speaking to the churches, he says to a few of them that I will remove your candlestick if you do not repent. So we understand that there is this symbology of light. And when they are not radiating light, they are threatened with removal. So when the church does not radiate light, we're going to see in the upcoming days, um, they're supposed to disappear. Because they're good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the feet of men. That's a warning to the churches. But there are seven golden lampstands. And so we see the symbology of light. And of course Christ said that he is the light of the world. But he also said to his disciples, those who were followers of Jesus Christ, that as followers of Jesus Christ, they also are the light of the world. The church is to be light. And so in the mystical vision of Revelation, the seven golden candles or the seven golden lampstands, they are symbols of divine revelation. And they are these symbols are given to us to communicate something to us, to draw us into a deeper understanding. They are not given to us to darken the understanding. These symbols and these images are given to us so that we might understand and further understand the manifestation of the risen Christ. So we see these symbols of completeness, seven. The number seven is an interesting number in the Bible. And so it represents completeness, And perfection. And so, here in the context of the lampstands, we see that there is a a completeness here of the unity of these churches. We see the unity of the church, the completeness of these lampstands there in Asia, signal the inclusivity of Christ's light reaching to every corner and crevice of his church and the world. In verse number four, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. 
Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. So we see here that there is completeness in these seven churches in Asia that are being addressed here. And they are connected together on this lampstand. We also see the unity in diversity, even though they are connected, even though it's a lampstand, it is still distinct. Because in this lampstand are the seven seven distinct churches that are represented as part of the candlestick upon the lampstand. And so there is unity, but distinction. And we find that each congregation with its unique identity and calling contributes to the collective radiance of the church and of Christ. Because Christ is the one in the middle, in the midst of the lampstands. So there's unity in diversity that we find here in these seven churches. Just as Paul said that we talking about the church, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. But we also see that these lampstands are radiating the light of Christ. They are radiating the light of he who is in the midst of them. Another example that we could give is Christ as the sun and we as the moon. Reflecting the light of the sun. Christ is in the midst of them, but they're they're radiating that light of Christ. We could go back to the idea of the menorah, the lampstand in the tabernacle that symbolized God's presence. And we could visualize that, and it's probably what's being used here as the imagery, and probably the reason why Uh, We don't see the imagery as well as we should. But in the New Testament, we see that the church is the bearer of light. It is that menorah. It is that lampstand. We are the bearers of Christ's light. We are the bearers of Christ's presence. He who is in the midst of them. And of course, the light does what? I love the um, illustration of the light. Because light does what? What does light do? It dispels darkness, right? So when it's dark, you turn a light on so you can see. But what the light does is it dispels the darkness. The darkness flees from light. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Darkness flees from light. And that is so important to understand here, even in the imagery, as we understand the connection of Christ and light and the churches and light. Light dispels darkness. Darkness flees from light. All of our moaning and groaning and complaining and excuses and all that is hogwash. It really is a reflection of our rebellion against our sovereign king and ruler. 
It is really a description of our sinfulness. It is really more about us in that we don't want darkness to flee. We like the darkness. Just as Jesus said, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. The truth of the matter is, we want it to be dark because our deeds are evil. Because I'm telling you, darkness flees from light. And if the church is the light of Christ in which it is, darkness should flee. Why is darkness not fleeing? Well, our light must not be very bright. Have you ever had one of those flashlights where the battery's about to go dead? Huh? And you're out, it's pitch black. You don't have another light. And you're trying to, whatever it is you're trying to do, maybe you're hunting and you're walking through the woods. That's the worst. Uh, Maybe you're trying to work on a vehicle out in your parking lot. Or your driveway, sorry. Um, Whatever it is you're trying to do, and you have that that dim light that's barely, it's barely putting off enough light so that you can see your hand. It's worthless, right? It doesn't shine very far and it doesn't dispel light or darkness very much. Jesus said that you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Then why are we hidden? Why are we hidden as Christians and as the church? Well, it's because we are not shining forth the light of Christ. But we also understand through this imagery here, the ongoing spiritual battle, that this is an ongoing spiritual battle because the lampstands, though radiant, exist in a world shrouded in spiritual warfare. And the completeness of the seven lampstands alludes to the church's role in The contending, a continual contending against the forces of darkness. Because the reality of it is this. So if we had a lampstand with seven golden candlesticks and seven candles on it, and it was nighttime and there was no other lights here and we lit it, the light, when it's brighter, right? The brighter it gets, the more it dispels darkness. And the less bright it gets, the more darkness. There's this constant confrontation between light and darkness. Whenever the light is brighter, the darkness is in retreat. Is whenever the light is dimmer, the darkness is advancing. It's a continual battle of light and darkness. And so the church's role is to contend against the forces of darkness. We are in a spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. And of course we know that we're in a battle against principalities and powers and against rulers of the darkness of this age and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So the seven golden lampstands... It 
helps illustrate the richness of these biblical truths, the symbolism here. It's not trying to hide the truth. It's unveiling the truth. So this symbolism here of the seven golden lampstands, we find completeness. It is a lampstand. It's one unit. We find unity and diversity in it and radiance and spiritual warfare. And so as we begin to contemplate these things, Here, concerning the vision of the Son of Man, may our hearts, first of all, resonate with the call to be unified, radiant, and a formidable light in a world yearning for the transformative brilliance of Christ's presence. Father, we thank you for this day. And Lord, we ask that you would be with us in our sorrow. But in the midst of our sorrow, may we have joy in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would grant us an understanding of your word so that we might go forth and do it. Because blessed are they who hear the word of God and keep it. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.